If you would with me, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We'll be picking up in verse 21 this morning. Matthew 18, 21. It's not a Mother's Day message, I realize, this morning. Uh, the topics are forgiveness, marriage, and divorce. <laughs> so, sorry. <laughs> While you're making your way out there, uh, last week we left off on what do you do when someone in the church, someone who calls himself a believer, sins against you? What, what would God have us do as kids of the kingdom? Well, he gave us three steps there. It's beginning in Matthew 15. Step one is what? Go to them, right? And tell them their faults. And if they listen, you've won a brother, you've won a sister. Yay. It's done. It's over. Amen. Step two, verse 16, go to them again. If they're not listening, uh, go to them again, but this time with two, two or more is the idea. And again, you approach them and you can get counsel in that situation. It's not just a one-on-one situation, but you have more ears on the subject. But the idea is the circles just barely widen. And if you win them, great, it's done. But if not, circle gets widened. Verse 17 says, tell it to the church. Then gets bigger. The church and church leadership gets involved. You're involved in the discipline process. And in mind here are two things. One is the restoration and repentance of a person. And number two is at the same time is the protection and the purity of the church. Those things are in mind in the Lord's uh, mind as he lays out these steps for us. And so it comes to the church, but if they don't listen to the church, then they get excommunicated from the church. They get handed over to Satan as first Corinthians chapter five, I believe says when Paul says for the destruction of the flesh, in other words, the enemy has his way with him and hopes that they turn and repent eventually as they have a hardship and they're no longer the ble- under the blessing and the protection that God gives within the church. And so one of the natural questions that comes out of this process that Jesus laid out for us uh, is expressed by Peter as we pick up in verse 21 this morning. This is then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times seven? And so if you go through the process and uh, hey, step one and they listen, wonderful, you forgive them or step two or step three, or even if they get removed from the church and they repent and they come back, they're like, Hey, um, you know, forgive me. What do we do? Well, he says, repent. Well, the Peter asked the question, well, how many times does this happen? How many times? Seven times. In other words, is there to be a limit on our forgiveness? Is there to be a limit on our forgiveness? Well, Jesus responds to Peter in verse 22. He said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times or 70 times seven, as some of your translations say. Father, we come to you now. We ask that you would open our hearts. Just teach us to be forgivers the way that you forgive us. Forgive us for falling short, Lord. Forgive us for the heart of the hardness of heart do a work within us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Some of your translations say 70 times seven, right? Some of your same 77. Yeah. So technically is Jesus like saying, Hey, well, my version says 77 times and you're at like 76. Can't wait. 
77, we're done with you. <laughs> oh, but my translation says 70 times 7, so you math people, mathletes, 490. Yes, it's just like, boom, there it is, 490. So marriage, you're at 489. <laughs> mm, here we go. It's figure of speech. It's a figure of speech, right? This is how we do things in the kingdom of God. This is how we are to be. This is to be a characteristic among us. We are to be a people who forgive. That's, that's who we're to be. We are to be a people who continually forgive sins that have been committed against us. This is to be our DNA as believers. And let me say that it goes contrary to what is in our hearts, what we each struggle with. Amen. And Jesus paints a picture of how important this is to him and for us in a parable. And so with the remaining of the chapter, he gives us a parable. Let's go over it real quickly. Verse 23, Jesus begins, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, uh, one who was brought to him owed him 10,000 talents. And so this servant, presumably in this parable, this is the story, presumably has a, uh, some kind of job where he's collecting taxes. It might seem there's some kind of situation where he has heavy responsibility, taking in large sums of money for the king. And the king is going to settle an account with him. He as all Kings do. And in this situation, this man has a 10,000 talent debt to his master, to the king. And you've been in debt. No, that's not a fun thing. Now, some of your Bibles have a little letter next to the word talent, right? Because we don't know what talent means in English. And so you look at the little letter and then you go down to the bottom. And what does it say next to it? Yeah, somebody say 20, sometimes people say 20 years wages worth of labor. And again, this is a best guess. It's a guess. It could be more, it could be less. But the idea is that if, if that were the literal case, math people again, the, the servant owed 20 years wages worth of labor. 20 years wages worth of labor. That's crazy. So if that's the case, that's a, that's a lot. That's a lot. For one talent is 20 years. How many does he owe? 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents times 20 years is 200,000 maybe or something like that. I don't know. I don't have 200,000 years to work off anything. Anybody else? So... If that's the case, the guy's in, in, in a real situation. But here's, again, I think it's a figure of speech. Actually, when I was reading MacArthur's commentary, he points out that although the word there for 10,000 technically, technically means 10,000, it might also be used in a way that is in a place, that's a place marker for an unimaginable sum. It's kind of like how we sing the song 10,000 Reasons. Do we have 10,000 reasons to praise the Lord? Technically, we, we could find them eventually, but offhand, how many of you have 10,000 reasons? No it's, no, it's a figure of speech saying it's just, there are more reasons than we can count, right? It's interesting also, and this is the nerdy part, uh, enough, our word for myriad 
we is derived from this word 10,000. So when it, the word uh, myriad meaning a great sum, you can't figure it out. It's a myriad of things. That word actually is, is linked to this Greek word for 10,000. So it can be used as a figure of speech. The point being that Jesus is saying the guy owes so much, he'll never be able to repay it. That's the point. That's the point. And verse 25 says, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. You know, throughout history, there's been something called debtor's prison. Um, now we, you know, we don't like this, but even in our history, in our early American history, there was something called debtor's prison. Uh, so if you couldn't pay your debt, it wasn't that you got, you know, people calling you night and day asking for the money. It wasn't that you got a bad credit score. Oh no, no, they took, you were the collateral. They took you and sold you and your family and your possessions. And they, they got whatever they could out of you or they, or you were taken and used as labor infinitum or for seven years or whatever it might be under the existing laws. And so in other words, this guy was not getting out of his debt, no matter what he could do. The debt was too great. And he was going to be grabbed, sold, confiscated, enslaved. And that's the way of the world. When you're in debt. Verse 26. So what do you do when you're in a situation where you're in such great debt? Well, what's the recourse? What can you do? Verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. So this servant wasn't arguing the point. He knew he was in debt. It was like, it was just a done deal. He was crying out for mercy. He said he would work it off and pay it off. Technically he could never do it. That's the point. He's just desperate. Well, how does the King respond? Verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. How many of you think about that right now? If all of your debt was just wiped out by someone who could take your life. Oh man. Gratitude, right? What mercy. Can you imagine that? That's amazing. He had compassion on this guy and on his family and on his kids. He just had mercy. This comes, he did, it was undeserved. The guy had it coming to him. He had mismanaged things. But here, here, this king, this master has compassion on him, releases him and forgave his debt. And so what did the guy do after receiving such mercy? Verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him. He began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. Not the response you'd expect, right? I mean, just us reading this story going, oh man. So you can feel the indignation well up within us, right? This is not right. Well, he wasn't treating those who were indebted to him the way that the king treated him when he was indebted to the king. And it says here that this guy that he went and choked and demanding payment from, he owed him three denarii. Some people say uh, that's 
I'm sorry, a hundred denarii. That's, that's about three, three months wages. Some say you can look in your little note thing, go down to the bottom about three months wages, three months, pretty manageable. Don't you think it's a lot of money? How many of you three months? That's like, might take you a long time to pay that off, but nothing compared to 200,000 years of wages. Verse nine, verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Sound familiar? Same thing. The guy cried out. Unbelievable, right? Verse 31, uh, verse 30, but he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Verse 31. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master, all that had taken place. Verse 32. And then his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in his anger, his master delivered him up to the jailers until he should pay his debt. And at this point, we are all right on. Everybody just go, this guy's a turkey. He got what's coming to him. How could he be so hard hearted? And here's the next thing. You got to read the next verse. Verse 35. And so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you. If you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Hey, Peter, hey, church, not seven times, 70 times seven. We are to forgive one another over and over and over. Why? Because that's what he's done with us. We had 200,000 years of debt. <laughs> Obviously it's infinite. And he wiped our slate clean on the cross as we begged for mercy, as the Holy spirit convicted us of our debt. This is what salvation is a conviction of debt and a crying out for mercy to God. And God says, I will pay it through the blood of my son. I have paid it and we believe and are saved. That's salvation. The work of God within us, the extended mercy, undeserved, unmerited favor. And so the point is, in light of that mercy, why would you ever, why would we ever think of not forgiving those who have sinned against us when they ask us to forgive them? We have such an insignificant, insurmountable debt towards one another compared to what he's done. I am not undermining the pain and suffering that sin does with one another, but in comparison, it's like this. And our forgiveness of one another is to be the way he has forgiven us from the heart. Wow. From the heart. Is that not convicting? From the heart. Now the Lord is the Lord talking about losing your salvation here for unforgiveness. 
I wouldn't think so, even though it kind of seems like that because he took the guy and put his debt back on him and threw him in jail. But that kind of doesn't square with the rest of Scripture. Is he talking? Is he talking about the father disciplining us heavily when we don't forgive one another? I would assume that that's in the equation for believers, right? Whatever it is, do you see the threat? Do you see how important that is to the Lord? Do you see from his perspective, how important forgiveness is to be in the DNA of his kids, to be in the life of his kids. If in true, if truly we are his kids. And I think the implication of this is that this is how his kids live. We live in forgiveness of one another. Now this doesn't mean that forgiveness equals trust. We don't take someone who's done something and then just re-entrust them with the same thing that there has, that has to be earned, but forgiveness is freely given. I know that's a difficult discussion, but it needs to be had. Now here's another thing I do realize, and we've all experienced or been one of these people at times to our regret that face people or our people at sometimes believers who will not ask for forgiveness. They won't come to the table. They won't respond. They won't even entertain the conversation. There's a hard heartedness there. They're not interested in reconciliation. I would say in those situations, and I know for a fact that in those situations, the enemy is at play and he would want to seek us to have a hard heart towards those people, a hard heart. And to allow him to get a foothold that we would, it's just, it's the reality. It's, it's easy to do to become bitter, to become hard hearted, to become resentful, to become angry, all these things. But here's what I've learned. And what I think is biblical is that we have to view those people always in the light of the cross. We have to view those situations in, in the context of this parable. Lord, they've sinned against me three days, three months wages in comparison to my debt from you, Lord, if I desire the greatest, if I desire for you never to hold anything against me, Lord, I want to have that same heart towards them that I wouldn't hold my, my heart in a, in a situation of anger or bitterness and all that stuff towards them. And, and what that does is if, if you have that situation in the light of the cross of that relationship of mercy, the mercy you've been given going, it changes you because as you look at them, as you look at the situation, you are longing to extend that same mercy to them. And you leave the wrath of God to God. And so we're praying for them and we're looking and we're longing for those opportunities to extend that mercy, because that is the heart of God. And I was also say so that we need to have a protection in our hearts against that church. 
That's where the enemy's going to play with us. He's going to put a root of bitterness. He's going to make you not. He's going to make us divide over things like this. And it gets messy. But I would also say that um, in those circumstances where they're unresponsive, unforgiving, and all those types of things, I think we need to have also the same mindset of Christ on the cross when he's hanging there and he's crying to the father, forgive them for they know, know not what they do. They re, if they really knew the wrath that was coming, if they really knew your holiness and your love and your forgiveness and all these types of, they really knew you, they wouldn't even entertain this. And neither would I in my heart. So Lord forgive them for they know not what they do. So we are to have an attitude of forgiveness towards one another an attitude of forgiveness towards those who have sinned against us. This doesn't mean we don't use wisdom and circumstances and pretend like everything's all right. Okay. So that's that there has to be wisdom, but forgiveness in meaning I'm willing to not hold it against you. So complex. And I, I probably could have done a better job of explaining that I'm still in the weeds of it but it would please the Lord if we had the same heart as him. Amen. (laughs) This is what he's saying here. Have my heart of forgiveness towards one another, please. And I would also say, uh, we leave the wrath to God. We leave the wrath to God and the government, by the way, because it's their responsibility. Um, chapter 19. So a lot there continues. Now, when Jesus had finished these things, these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And so Jesus is leaving the Northern part up by the sea of Galilee. He's going South following along the Jordan river. And he's way down there somewhere by the dead sea, that area. And he's healing people. And guess who decides to tag along? Oh yeah. Good. Our good buddies, the Pharisees here. Yeah. Verse three and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now it's been the pattern where the Pharisees are keep bringing up points of the law of Moses to try to trip Jesus. And so when it says test there, they're trying to trick. Okay. <laughs> they're trying to get Jesus to falter in this situation. And they're doing this on the subject of divorce, you know, just a, any old, it's not, it's not a sensitive topic. There's no controversy in it whatsoever. You know, no one has an opinion on it. So their question is a tricky one. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? What's in view here is Deuteronomy chapter 21, one through four, Deuteronomy 24, one, uh, 21, one through four. I keep saying 24. Gosh, I might have the backwards. You can figure it out. <clears throat> where Moses kind of lays out the conditions, the acceptable conditions for a certificate of divorce. It says when a man, uh, just verse one says, uh, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and it goes on and on and on. And so if you're reading this from a legal perspective, you want to know what, if then she finds no favor in his eyes means. What does that mean? Well, there's two schools of thought in that day, two rabbis that were prominent that had two different thoughts about how this was to go. Uh, one was uh, Shammai 
and, and the other one was Hillel. And so Rabbi Shammai and those in his, in his uh, school interpreted this verse very strictly. And what they said is when, she, when he has no favor in her eyes because of some indecency, the context there is adultery. And so the idea is that she's committed adultery and that is the, there's no favor in his eyes. And there's a, so the, the context is adultery there. That, that would be their interpretation of this. And in that situation, uh, Moses permitted divorce, but Hillel and his crew and, and they had a very liberal interpretation in the sense that they thought she finds no favor in his eyes meant he, you know, she bugged him. You know, whatever it might be. And the grounds for the divorce could be very subject to, you know, it's very loose. And so in asking Jesus this question publicly, they really didn't care about his answer. They just wanted him to side with one to divide the crowd that was following him. And so they would come against him in one way or the other. That's what was going on here. And so what is, where does Jesus land on divorce? What is, what's his teaching on divorce? Verse four. And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Now what Jesus is doing here is masterful. He is going before the law. He's going to the creation account and he is going, he's asking them rhetorically. Hey, have you read the Bible? You know, these are the teachers of the day, right? They, they've read the Bible. They've read the old Testament and Jesus is, is going there and he's saying he's purposefully going before the law of Moses to go to the purpose, God's purpose and God's intent for marriage, God's purpose and God's intent for marriage. They want to talk about divorce. He wants to teach them about marriage. They want to talk about divorce. He wants to teach them about marriage. If you understand God's design and purpose for marriage, you are going to understand his position on divorce. If you go to the intent, you can see the anomalies. Does that make sense? You got to go to the intent. What did God design marriage for? This is premarital counseling. Welcome to it. (laughs) Session one. And it's, this is what I go through with, with people in the, in the very first day that you get together. I want you to understand God's intent and design for marriage, because if you understand that, then all the other things ducks have to go in a row, but we don't go into marriage thinking the way that God thinks about marriage. We go into marriage thinking the way the world thinks about marriage and society thinks about marriage, what you think about marriage, what, what your parents think about marriage. And what Jesus is doing here is he is bringing them to the intent of God's design for marriage. So he says, Hey, God created the male and female in the beginning. Haven't you read this? Genesis 1:17, by the way, is the definitive and proper view of human sexuality. This is reality. This is predetermined by God. You were created male or female. There is no variant. You are either male or female. This is how God created his creation. You got to track with me here. If you lost me on that point, you're not going to listen to the rest, but this is what he does. And we are created this way with a unique attribute among all the creatures of the earth. And that we as human beings were created in his image, both male and Female created in his image, both male and female. 
And you have to follow this because this is about God first and us second. This is about God first and us second. What is marriage from God's perspective? What is marriage for God from God's perspective? We were created in his image. You were created a male or a female in his image. Obviously this is God is spirit. And we know that Jesus is the expressed image of God in the flesh, but we were created in his image. What does that mean? In his moral likeness in his intellectual likeness in his social likeness that we reflect God. And we do that collectively together as men and women, we reflect them. But if you notice, we are also distinct men and women are different. And all the married people said, amen. But you share intellect, you share volition, will, you share morality, you share the capacity for social engagements, all these types of things. You share that you have these things in common, but they're expressed differently in each of you. And that is by design. That is God's purpose. Being created in his image. And so while males and females share these qualities, we also tend to express them uniquely. And although we are the same, we're different in various ways, but together in marriage, we paint that unique picture in a unique way. Verse five, this is Jesus's thinking here. And he said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be, and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become what one flesh. There's a unity there. And so they are no longer two. It says, but one flesh. They're no longer two, but they're one created in the image of God, both male and female. So there's distinction there. And yet God created marriage to unify the two, to make them one. So there is no distinction. Does that remind you of someone? God. Hero Israel, the Lord, thy God, thy God is he's one. And yet he is father, he is son and the Holy spirit. Distinct roles within them. And yet they are looked at and viewed at as one. There are, there's authority and submission. We get confused. We're going, why does Jesus submit to the father? Why does it say the authority is given from the father to the son? That means Jesus isn't God. How's that work in your marriage? that you aren't equals. You're absolutely equals before God, but you have distinct roles as you reflect him. And it's obviously men are created different than women. Women are created different than men for roles and purposes where that relationship is supposed to be a relationship of love, where our strengths glorify the other. We come and we lift up the weakness in one another and, and our weaknesses are strengthened by the other. That's God's purpose. That as we come together, the guy uses the guy things to lay down his life and bless the wife. And the, and the girl uses her, her, her girl things to lay down and, and bless the husband. 
And together there's this beautiful relationship, this unity that happens, a God design. That is why what's going on in the world is a perversion. And it's not to be accepted in your heart. It's an offense to God. That is not how he made you. And that is not your design and not your role. And if you're struggling with that stuff, man, I understand we're all broken. We've got sin going on us in different ways, but repent and let God restore that within your heart. But created in the image of God, both male and female. So there's distinction there and yet there's unity. This is what marriage it is. It's a picture that reflects him in us. That's what your marriage is supposed to be at its highest. Marriages between a man and a woman. And we were created distinct to come to complement one another. A male and female marriage bears the image of our creator. Marriage is not what the society says it is. Marriage is not between a man and a man and a woman and a woman, no matter what's in law, it's not it. And you know, if I'm preaching this here and people are being arrested in Canada for this stuff, we've got to draw lines in the sand. And this is one of them. Why? Because we want to be mean to people. No, because look at what Jesus says. Is this the God we worship or is it not? And by the way, the rest will come here. The persecution will come here. It's coming. And Jesus says there back in verse six, because this is the image, because the image is the two becoming one to show the picture of God, because of that, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. What's his position on divorce? Do we see it? <laughs> they want to talk about divorce. He wants to talk about marriage. That is God's design for marriage. A man, a woman, each uniquely bearing the image of God, his intellect, his will, his attributes, and their various forms coming together and expressing him, reflecting him to the creation. This is about him. Do you view your marriage that way? Boy, I was convicted this week when I read this. I am learning. 21, 22 years. Oh gosh, I'm still learning. 22 years, maybe, honey. I don't know. Uh, June 2. Together we bear his image, unified, one, complementary to one another, authority, submission, in a loving relationship, and so on. And we see Paul pick up this theme in the New Testament where he starts speaking about Christ and the church and how we are unified in him and the roles that we have in society are to reflect that order. But our human heart bucks against that. Why? Cause I want to be on top. I want to be number one. I want to rule. I want to dominate and I want people to serve me. That's pride. That comes from the evil one. That's why he got kicked out of heaven. And that's our DNA as fallen human beings. But the Lord by his rebirth wants to change that within us. This is how we need to view marriage. Divorce is not in the picture. God is one. We're to be one in our marriage. They wanted to talk about divorce and Jesus wants to teach them about marriage. That brings up a question that the Pharisees quickly ask. Well, then why is there permission to divorce 
in Deuteronomy 21. Why is, why is it legal to do that? Right? They said to him in verse, verse 7, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? What's up with that? In verse 8, Jesus gives the answer. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Because of the hardness of heart. And the context there is there's adultery going on, which hardly any human heart can survive. It's not that it isn't a forgivable thing and there isn't reconciliation, but marriages usually don't survive adultery as Israel was adulterous with God all the time. There's pictures of that in the old Testament. He's saying because of that hardness of heart, God permitted divorce. And there's a lot there on divorce and remarriage and all that stuff that we don't have time to first Corinthians seven is where you want to go for that. And also to us, we'll teach you. And God allowed Israel exceptions there. And the context again is adultery, but listen here. There's a reason why the Lord put Matthew 18 next to Matthew 19. (laughs) The forgiveness chapter from the heart and then the divorce chapter right on the heels of one another. You will not survive marriage if there is not a continual flow of repentance and, and forgiveness. People go, what, you know, what are the keys to successful marriage? Matthew 18, keeping a, a, you know, forgiving one another, working through things, you know, and I'm guilty needing to work through, you know, confession and all these things and not let things pile up. I mean, I'm not here to give you my marriage counseling situation, but anybody who's been married for a long time, we know that the enemy can come in and divide us. If there isn't that flow, there isn't that soft heart towards one another. And now in verse nine, Jesus finally gives him his position, the right position, by the way, on divorce hardness of heart. In verse nine, he says, I say to you, whoever, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery in God's eyes. Unfaithfulness is grounds for divorce. Now it does not mean that adultery can't be forgiven and there be reconciliation. That's what God would have desire if that's happened. But again, that kind of betrayal is often impossible to survive. So Jesus says that adultery is the grounds for divorce that Moses gave there in Deuteronomy 24. So if you went to Rabbi Hillel's church, his, his synagogue, and he's given a sermon saying, Hey, you know what? She burnt the toast. Get rid of her. You know what? You know, he picks his toes. He's gone. Get him out. He's done. And you go ahead and divorce them. And then you go remarry someone. Guess what? You're committing adultery. Why? Because you're still married. No, I got the certificate of divorce. What God has put together, let man not separate. You're not, you're not divorced. Why? Because Jesus says there's only certain parameters where people can be divorced. I know this is sticky. Listen, I come from a, a, a divorced family. I know most people in here have had that kind of situation go on. There's a lot to it. And so I'm just explaining what Jesus says. I want to say that God has a lot of forgiveness and a lot of grace. Amen. The cross covers all of it. So I do not want you to walk away here condemned, but there is also on the other side, such a blase attitude towards marriage and divorce that was going on in their day and is in ours. And Jesus says, man, 
what God has put together, let man not separate. There's only two reasons for divorce that God allows. And one is adultery and the other is abandonment by a a non-believer abandoning a believer. Those are, those are the only two. First Corinthians seven, read first Corinthians seven. And listen, marriage is beyond serious in God's eyes, beyond serious. He hates divorce because it misrepresents him in the deepest way. Marriage isn't primarily about you. It's about him. It's about his glory and his reflection in you and his creation. If you walk into marriage with that thinking as a believer, boy, that really opens things up. I'm here to glorify God. It's the very picture. Instead, what happens is the reflection that's supposed to be turns into a broadcast of hate and disruption and all those things that we're familiar with as human. It mocks him. I would encourage us to not only view marriage through your eyes, which is obviously reasonable, but view it through his eyes. And so upon this very easy and light teaching, the disciples said to him, verse 10, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. They're waking up to the reality of God's standard of marriage. Right. Which tells you that what they were teaching in synagogue was pretty weird. And what the society was saying was pretty weird. And that's where they were getting their cues. That's where they were getting their understanding. And so Jesus actually agrees with them in a way. There's something to what they're saying. Verse 11, but he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it is given. While marriage is the normal flow, the way God created us, it's the normal flow of creation. It is actually better not to be married in the first place is what Jesus is saying. Now, some of you are going, what are you talking about, Matt? What are you talking about? Well, that's why Jesus said, not everyone can receive the saying, <laughs> right? It's not for you. If you're sitting there going, no, man, I'm going to get married. I, I need to be married like that. Well, this, then it's not given to you to be single probably. And it's probably God's natural desire that he'll, he'll work that out. Right. But he's saying, yeah, like it's probably easier to be single. Now, what is he talking about? Listen, if you're single and you're going, you know, no way I'm going to get married. Then don't, don't worry about this. It's probably not for you, but understand it, please. It's probably not your gift to be single, but Paul in first Corinthians seven, again, by the way, read first Corinthians seven, hint, hint, the entire chapter deals with marriage and divorce and remarriage. That's what it's about. But Paul says regarding being single in first Corinthians seven, 32 through 35 being single in in first Corinthians seven, 32, 35. Let me read it for you. And I think this is what Jesus had in mind here. When he's talking about, those given the ability not to marry verse 32. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. Paul says the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife and his interests are divided. And the unmarried betrothed woman is, is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to be, uh, and how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about the worldly things, how to please her husband. Listen, being single 
a single believer and being a married believer, they each have their superpowers and they, all, they each have their kryptonite. Amen. Yeah. And he said, and Paul says there in verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, not to lay any restraint on you. You got to hear that, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Most important, be devoted to the Lord with where you are. If you're single, keep serving the Lord as a single person. If you're married, keep serving him. Don't try to get out of it. That's the teaching in first Corinthians seven. The Lord has much, has much to say the same. Not everyone can receive the same, but only the, to those to whom has it has been given. Well, how do you know if it's been given to you to be single and to be single minded towards the Lord and, and marriages and in your cards and stuff? Well, Jesus lays out three scenarios where that might happen two physical, one spiritual. One, he says there in verse 12, for there are eunuchs who have been born from birth. That means that there are those who have physical deformities in their reproductive organs or whatever that might cause them to not want to marry. So it's just a natural thing, right? There's a natural situation where that happens. And God says it might be given to you not to marry, that you can be wholly devoted to the Lord. He's just saying that's, that's a reality. But then he's also saying there were eunuchs made by men. When the conquering armies came in and took over you, they would often castrate the men. I'm sorry to be graphic. That's what happened. Therefore they, they, their enemies couldn't repopulate and you'd become slaves. And so therefore some of the people in the church had dealt with that situation. It was a reality. Some of them were slaves and were conquered and this happened and it's, it's brutal. And so therefore there isn't the drive. There isn't, the, all the things there. And so they could be single minded towards the Lord. And he's encouraging them in those situations. I'm not saying you have to, he's just saying that it might be for you. But then he says the last version, he says the last situation. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. This is not physical. This is a spiritual analogy. In other words, they act as if they're singly devoted to the Lord. They're saying, I'm going to live a celibate devoted life to the Lord, even though they're all normal physically and all that stuff. They choose to do that. Guess who the people were that did that? Jesus Christ, (laughs) Paul, the apostle, a lot of the early church, but some didn't. Peter was married, right? So this is, there's, Paul would say that to be single and to be is to be busy about the Lord's work. If you're single right now, be busy about the Lord's work and trust him with the marriage part. He'll make it come about. Amen. He will, he will, he will in this time and trust him. Just, just continue to focus the Lord. He's going to bump you believers in, into one another. And I'll make sure, you know, the, 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 the rules will get you married. As I'm looking out, I see several of you. (laughs) So there's much more on this topic. There's much more, like a lot more. What do you do in the situation of divorce? What happens if I'm divorced and I'm remarried? What happens now? Am I under the judgment of God? All this kind of stuff. And, and I've taught on this ad nauseum but maybe this, these are things you guys can discuss in your small groups this week as we're, we're out of time. I want you to not let the enemy weigh you down with guilt. Okay. If you're divorced and remarried and divorced and remarried, 
don't get divorced. <laughs> Work with where you are. God, God will bless you where you're at. Okay. That's just a very short, quick summary of things. There's a lot of grace. Listen, the Lord is working with sinners. It's not to dismiss the sin, but also I think what this does is when we see God's standard and we see how high and how lofty it is, and we see how far we've fallen and how much he's forgiven us. We walk humbly, <laughs> right? We walk humbly with one another and with, with others. Cause, Oh man, you forgive me so much. Thank you for your grace, Lord. Now may I reflect that in the life around me. Amen. Complex, but uh, that's where we'll have to stop. Lord God, thank you so much for the, your word. It's so powerful, so rich. And Lord, as the Pharisees kept trying to give them what the law was saying, you'd always go back to what you really mean by it. And this is no exception. Lord, may we live in forgiveness. Thank you for the forgiveness you've poured out us like dropping an ocean on our heads. We're washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. All sin is removed. Thank you that we can live in that now. God, may there be no hard heartedness in this room towards one another or those on the outside. God, may we live in light of the cross. Give us the grace to forgive Lord. Teach us to be a forgiving people. Teach us to forgive one another from the heart. Lord, forgive us for holding on to things. No, we don't justify sin Lord, but we are called to forgive it. And we ask these, this, this work to be done in our hearts that you, your name may be glorified in this place and love may flow freely, a true godly love. And we ask this in your name. Amen.